Thanks to Ken and Ed leading the ladies in that song. <clears throat> and my heart is convicted this morning because I believe I'm one of those who forgets about the benefits of the Lord. And we have much to be thankful for this morning that he forgives all of our sins and heals all our diseases. And so I hope that you're blessed this morning by the singing and by the worship that we've experienced. And we want to continue that time in the Word of God. So if you have your Bibles, open up to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, we're in verses 1 through 4. We've actually been in verse 4 for about four sermons. And we're going to try to finish it up today, guys. We titled this series, Raising Kids Without Raising Cain. I told you again, I took that title from author Martha Peace. And our goal in parenting is to be faithful. And of course, our desire is that all of our kids would come to know the Lord and walk with the Lord and know the benefits of the Lord. But sometimes they don't. We can rest in the comfort of our God and in the truth of God's word and focus on being faithful to do what God has called us to do. And so let's look again, if we can, at Ephesians 6. We'll look at verses 1 through 4 while we'll be camping out at the end of verse 4. Just in case you were looking for a Valentine's message this morning, I just wanted to remind you that Valentine's Day is all about love. God is love. If you love your kids, you will discipline them. Therefore, this is a Valentine's Day message. <laughs> so Ephesians 6, 1 through 4. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. That it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Father, we bow our heads before you this morning. We desperately need to understand your grace this day. And we desperately need to be the parents who would trust in the word of God and the spirit of God to be exalted in our parenting. We confess, God, that we are far too quick to trust in our own measures. And so we repent of our own self-sufficiency. And this day, God, we come to your word with a desire to learn and to follow, to rest and to strive, to obey and to be consistent in being the faithful parent that you've called us to be, trusting you with the results. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> well, parenting is not easy. Someone has said that you spend the first 12 months of a child's life teaching them how to speak and how to walk. And then you spend the next 20 years of that child's life trying to tell them how to sit down and be quiet. <laughs> so which one is it, right? Parenting can just be challenging. It's challenging to know what to do and when to do it. And it takes wisdom and it takes skill to be a good parent. And it doesn't come naturally to parents. No longer than it comes naturally to a child to be redeemed and to appreciate the grace of God. It doesn't come naturally to a parent to function in a God-honoring way. We must remember that parents, like children, are born in sin and are fallen creatures. But if we as parents have been redeemed by the grace of God, then we have a responsibility to honor God in how we raise our kids. And we've got to remember again that the goal is to be faithful. You cannot assure the results, no more than you can assure the results of your favorite team winning the championship game. 
So what we've got to do is play in the game of life as hard as we can, depending on the work of the Spirit, to magnify the Lord Jesus Christ. We're striving to be faithful parents. We're striving to be filled with the Spirit and functioning in a Christ-honoring way. And sometimes it doesn't feel like Christ is being honored in our parenting. In fact, this week I read a book written back in the 90s by John Miller, who used to be on the West Coast and then moved to the East Coast, where he serves as a pastor in the Philadelphia area and serves at Westminster Seminary as an adjunct professor. And he wrote a book called Come Back, Barbara. Anybody remember that book? Come Back, Barbara. Maybe a couple of you do. And the book is a profound treatment of how a parent can trust God even when your child walks away from the Lord. And they had five kids. Their fourth kid was Barbara. She went AWOL. She was the black sheep of the family. She rebelled for almost a decade, and it ripped his heart out. And by the grace of God, she eventually bowed the knee to Christ. And so he wrote a book called Come Back, Barbara, where he wrote chapters of explaining what was going on from his perspective, and then she would respond to each chapter. Here's what he writes. Any child who is not firmly disciplined and lovingly nurtured by his parents will likely turn into an adolescent monster. Effective parenting does require a certain amount of parental rule, especially in the early years. But control is another matter entirely. It is dangerous because the parent who practices it omits something essential. Many fathers and mothers are simply more satisfied with a child's conformity and less concerned with the youngster's motivation and hidden desires, with what the Bible calls the thoughts of the heart. Often, unconsciously, the self-centered parent labors to form an orderly child who performs well in public and does not shame the family by disturbing the status quo. The problem, of course, is not with the orderliness of the child, but with the shaping of a person with a desensitized conscience, a performer who has never learned to love God or people from the heart. I think John makes a very important statement, basically focusing, uh, as parents, we got to focus not just on the outside. Right? How many of us would be pleased if our kids just obeyed us externally and didn't embarrass us in public or when we have people in our house? We also got to be focusing on the inside, that our kids get the understanding and the heart of why it is that they are to obey, that it may go well with them, and they may live long on the earth. And so the idea is we've got to realize let's, let's not only discipline our kids, but let's talk to them about their heart. Let's talk to them about their need of grace. Let's talk to them about what it truly means to love Christ. John Miller also writes, quote, We had placed a great confidence in Christian nurture in the home and in Christian private schools. But no one grows into grace through a Christianized environment. No one gets to God by moral self-improvement. You only get to God by being transplanted from your natural soil into the life of Christ by a personal faith in him. In our nurture of Barbara, we had unconsciously forgotten these foundational truths. It's almost like he's pleading with us, don't forget, it's got to be God. 
Yes, you got to be faithful. Yes, we want to study the scripture and obey what God has called us to obey as, as, as parents. But don't forget the real work is God's work. We think that our kids will come to faith if we do all the right things and how, how we need to, to be reminded that only God can save our kids. We are to be faithful in placing the gospel truths into conversations with our kids, but only God can light the fire in their life. We're to be faithful to talk to our kids about the truths of the Bible, but only God can light the fuse that would lead to saving faith. We are to be placing the gospel bomb, as one pastor has said, into the fabric of our kids' makeup. But only God can light the bomb. Oh, how we need to pray that God would light the bomb. You can't depend on homeschooling to do it. You can't depend on Christian schooling to do it. You can't depend on the children's ministry to do it. You can't depend on the youth ministry to do it. You can't depend on Sunday school to do it. You can only depend on God to do it. And so as parents, we need to be more faithful in praying that God would light the bomb, that the gospel would explode in the hearts of our children with an authentic faith, not just a moral conformity to what we know to do and what's the right thing to act, what right way to act as children. We need God to light the bomb. John Miller goes on to say this, many times we parents fail right here by not taking the time to wait upon the Lord in prayer, to ask with confident faith for his wisdom in our understanding of how to relate to our children. But when we earnestly and sincerely claim the transforming wisdom of the Spirit, that we, what we learn is surprising. We ask for the transforming presence of the Spirit from the Father as as promised by Jesus in Luke chapter 11 which talks about the Lord's Prayer, also talks about you have not because you ask not, so ask and it will be given unto you. And so he goes on to say, then, then, then when he visits us, he reveals that it has been very wrong to give way to despair. Despair of God's help for the child is unbelief, which is the gravest of sins. In other words, we're to keep asking God to do it. Don't grow in your despair. Grow in your dependence on the Lord to do that which only he can do. Don't be discouraged today. At least don't let it steal all of your joy, but rather be dependent on the Lord. Miller continues, excuse me, such pessimism often leads parents into a second mistake, one that the spirit is eager to overcome. It is simply that in our doubts, and anxieties, we give God little opportunity to be God over the situation. We read books, seek out counselors, and talk endlessly about our problem. We are also uh, eager to do anything to bring about an immediate recovery of the prodigal and free us from our pain that we fail to see that we are too far from God. Stated positively, the Father wants to bring us as parents back to the intimate fellowship of his house. He is so very wise. <coughs> he knows it is silly for us to try to bring our children to the Father's home when we ourselves are not living in its joy and warmth. So his method is to bring us near 
to his own heart and experience his peace. Then, by our changed lives, we begin to magnetize the child to return to the abundance of the father's house. If you are not trusting in God, why would your kids trust in God? That's what he's saying, right? You got to first have a vibrant relationship with the Lord that your kids want instead of constantly nagging them to honor God if your kid is going wayward. Before God fixes the problem, it may be that he wants to fix you. As you learn to rest in God's peace, your child may be more drawn to the peace that only God can provide. One last quote from Come Back, Barbara. I realize that some hurting parents may think that I, I, that I make loving a rebellious son or daughter sound easy. It may even be that some think that Rosemarie, his wife, and I were on a higher plane of spirituality than the more garden variety suffering Christians who have family members living in rebellion to God. After all, if enduring, persevering prayer gives you that kind of speedy release from tensions, then maybe you are, in spite of what you said, offering us a magic bullet. But I don't view learning to wait on God as an easy thing to do at all. There are plenty of frustrations. Barbara was, in fact, sliding downhill throughout this period of her life and did not seem at all touched by our prayers. But at this stage of the relationship, the one needing change was not her, but her father. And it happened as I made a more total commitment to prayer as the power for forgiveness as a prevailing lifestyle. A forgiveness controlled, as forgiveness controlled my attitudes, I was able to love Barbara through thick and thin. Whenever I discovered myself angry or frustrated over her behavior, I simply forgave her all over again and saw the spirit of love again ruling in my attitude toward her and her friends. Why am I reading you all this? Because so many times as parents, we put our trust in our methods instead of our master. So many times as parents, we are prone to depend on a curriculum instead of depending on Christ. So many times as parents, we are tempted to trust in our actions instead of actively asking God to light the gospel bomb. If you want your children to explode into a, a passionate love for Christ, God must light the bomb. If you want your children to walk in obedience to Christ, then Jesus himself must regenerate their hearts. If you want your kids to give their lives to Christ, then you must depend on their lives to be given to Christ by his sovereign grace that only he can secure in the light, in, in the light of his gospel. We got to depend on the Lord to give himself to them by lighting the gospel bomb. What I'm saying this morning is with all the instruction and all the teaching we're doing here on how not to exasperate your kids and how to discipline them and to, to love them and instruct them, don't for a moment think that if you do all that, you will secure their salvation. We must come back to God for him to light the fire in their lives. And so last week, we examined what it means to bring our children up in the discipline of the Lord. 
And we try to talk about how this is actually a very positive command, not a negative one. The discipline of the Lord is not done out of hate, but it's done out of love. The discipline of the Lord is not done to crush us, but to cultivate a heart of obedience. The discipline of the Lord is not so much punitive as it is corrective. You get that? It's not like God's just trying to punish us for something bad we did. He's trying to correct us and to turn our hearts back to him. If you want an outline, this is what we've been looking at at verse 4. Number one, the negative command was not to provoke your child to anger. We spent two weeks examining 10 different ways you could provoke your children to anger. And then last week, we started the positive command. Number two, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And we spent a lot of time last week talking about godly discipline. And again, I wanted to make sure you understand that's a positive. The negative is don't provoke them to anger. The positive is bring them up, nourish them. Take the time to discipline them. And turn with me, if you will, to a couple of the texts we looked at last week. How about Hebrews 12? No text in the New Testament, I think, says it with more clarity and more exhaustion of what we should be thinking when we think about what it means to discipline our children than Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 through 11, which reads like this. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. In other words, he's saying, listen up. Don't regard this as a lightweight topic. This is a big deal. Nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. In other words, he's saying, wouldn't you rather have a father who disciplines you? It shows that he loves you. Otherwise, you're illegitimate. You don't really belong to the father. Verse 9. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Don't forget that truth. The temptation is, oh man, if I discipline my kid, they're going to hate me. Well, in the moment, it may feel like that, but throughout their lifetime, they will respect you for being faithful, which is why it says again, um, we had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they discipline us for a short time as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And so we had to learn that our number one motivation of disciplining our children is out of love. That we love our children. And the best thing you could do with your child is to correct them. Correct them. It would be cruel of you if your child, for example, was learning the alphabet and they mispronounced every letter and got it all out of order all the time. And you just said, ah, it's not a big deal. It's just the alphabet. No, it's a big deal. You got to keep correcting them kindly and gently so they can learn to read and learn to talk. We got to constantly correct our children. And so we looked at a lot of Proverbs. In fact, turn to Proverbs 19. I just want to, again, make sure you're seeing uh, what we looked at last week because I'm about to give a lot of practical application of this, and I just want to make sure you see where I'm standing 
and it's on the word of God. Proverbs 19, 18 says it like this. Discipline your son, for there is hope. And do not set your heart on putting him to death. All right, so don't get so angry that you want to kill your kid, but have hope in God. You be faithful. How many times as a mom with a lot of toddlers kind of lost hope that it's just not working because the kids aren't changing and we're not seeing the fruit? Stay faithful. Look at Proverbs 22, verse 15. Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. Last week, I told you that Lisa shared that verse with one of our kids, and he walked around for a week saying, drive it away, far away, mommy, drive it away, because we want to get rid of that folly, right, in the heart of a child. They're precious, they're funny, they're fools, right? (laughs) They need a rod to wake them up. Turn to chapter 23, chapter 23, verse 13 and 14, do not withhold discipline from a child. If you strike him with a rod, he will not die. I told you sometimes our kids are like, I'm bleeding, I'm bleeding. I'm like, oh, no, no, you're not bleeding. Verse 14, if you strike him with the rod, you will save his soul from Sheol. What would you rather him do, hurt a little bit during the discipline or hurt for an eternity? Because he's on his way to hell. Because you never took the time to show him the way to heaven through repentance and faith. And while it's only a sovereign act of God, certainly we have a part to play in being faithful to point our kids to the truth of the gospel. Turn to chapter 29 of Proverbs. Proverbs 29, verse 15. And we'll also look at verse 17. The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. You want to talk about the kids you see at Walmart that are acting out and not well-behaved? Sometimes that might be your kids or my kids because they're certainly not perfect, but sometimes you just kind of get the feeling that that child doesn't have any discipline at all. And sometimes they shame their parents because there's a lack of the regard of the rod and reproof in the home. Verse 17, discipline your son and he will give you rest. He will give delight to your heart. Remember I told you that story about Professor Montoya who had a woman in his church with four daughters, and she was always busy, busy, busy working and coming to the pastor, complaining about how difficult it was to keep up with his girls. And he just looked at her and said, you stupid. You stupid. You should already train your kids to do the laundry and the dishes. And they, you should be sitting in the couch and they bring you a glass of iced tea while you watch them work. That's part of the idea. If you're faithful while they're young, you'll be blessed as life goes on because you'll see fruit, again, only by the grace of God in your kid's life. So let's ask the question, how are we to discipline our children? That's where we ended last week, and so I want to get right down to these 10 suggestions. And let me, let me just remind you, these are suggestions. Nowhere in the Bible does it say, thou shalt discipline your kids in this way. While some of them certainly encompass biblical principles, I'm just kind of giving you the way I do it, okay? And you can find a lot of wiggle room in here, and you might take away a few and add a few of your own, all right? But here are 10 suggestions of how to discipline your child. Number one, and this is your first blank if you're taking notes, take your child to a private place where you will not be interrupted. I talked to you last week about sometimes you have to correct your child in public, because, you know, you can't always find that private place. But now we're talking about if you're planning to use the rod, right, you're not going to do that at the kitchen table. You're not going to do it in the family room. And you're not going to do it at the park. Right, you're going to go to a private place where you know it's safe and uninterrupted, where you can level with your child about the business at hand. 
Right? So make sure you take them to a private place. Don't humiliate them in front of others. Bring them to a private place where you can administer the rod in an appropriate way. Number two, make sure that you are not angry and that you have the right heart. Right? Easy for us as parents, after a few times of correcting our kids, we're finally ready to discipline them. And so we scoop up our kid and we march to the bedroom and we're angry and we're upset and we feel justified in feeling that way. Be careful. Take your time. Confess your sin. Tell your child, maybe, go on up to mommy's room. I'll be there in a minute. You think about what you've done. That might actually be saving some time for yourself. I need to think about what I'm about to do. It may be at certain times you need to uh, send your spouse up there. Say, honey, you know what? I mean, I, I think that when mom and dad are both home, it should be dad's primary place in the home to discipline his children. When mom is there, I think mom should do it. When she's there alone, if they're together, I try to challenge the dads to, to take the brunt of that responsibility. But there's times if a dad is really getting frustrated and he knows he's borderline in sin, it would be much wiser for him to say, hey, you know what? Mom is going to take care of this this time. And you just sit there and ask God to help you, right? It'd be better to do that than you to march up there and be like, I'm the dad of this house. And you march up there with your kid under your arm and show them you mean business because that's one of the main ways we exasperate our children, right? If you discipline them in anger, rest assured that that's not honoring to the Lord and not helping the heart of your child because then it does feel punitive and not corrective. Number three, talk to your child about what they did and explain how that was sin. You can't always have wonderful conversations with a toddler because sometimes they're kicking and screaming, all right? But the best that you can, it may be that you're trying to at least help the child acknowledge what they did was wrong. And you don't want to just leave it ambiguously wrong. You want to help tie a biblical truth to it like, hey, you lied to mommy. You stole something from your brother. You are angry in the way you're responding. You, you, you know, give a biblical word for it, right? It could be you're disobeying. You disobeyed. Dad told you to take out the trash, and you didn't do that. That's disobedience. That's a sin. Help, help your child acknowledge that. Like I said, sometimes with the really young toddlers, I might move straight to spanking closer to the front end and then try to teach them later. But I, I think if it's possible, you want your kid to know why he's getting a spank, right? So you want to try to explain it uh, on the front end. Hey, look, I'm going to tell you what happened. I want you to see what happened. And, so, and most kids, I think, have a sense of justice to some degree. They know they need to get discipline, right? They, they understand. Yeah, I lied. I know I got it coming to me. And they, they get that. And that's just a helpful way to communicate. So there's never a confusion about what you're disciplining them for. Number four, teach your child about what the Bible says you must do as a faithful parent. It is so helpful to remind your child of what it is that God's called you to do. So sometimes I may say, hey, so you, you lied and we talk about that and they're ready to confess that. And I just say, what do you think dad should do about that? What does the Bible say dad should do about your sin? Should I just let it go or should we do something about it? And, I, and we might turn to a text like this one, Ephesians 6, right? To discipline them in the Lord. Or we might turn to Hebrews 12, or at least talk about it. Hey, man, I've got to discipline you because I love you. That's what God does with us as his spiritual children. That's supposed to be a model for mom and dad. And so if I don't discipline you, I'm in sin. Just helpful to continue to make that connection that you also are under authority and that you're disciplining them because God's called you to discipline them in a loving, kind, gentle 
but firm way, which is our next one. Number five, discipline your child with the rod of correction in a firm but appropriate way. Okay, there's a lot of wiggle room here, remember, but let me just, I'll just tell you how we do it. We use the whacker. Okay, we got it from Growing Kids God's Way, which I think has helpful principles, but I don't think it's perfect because only this book is perfect, right? You may have been through Bill Gothard's training stuff or Growing a Kid's God's Way or whatever you're reading. That stuff can all be helpful, but you want to come back to the Word of God. Nevertheless, we went through a little training thing or something, and they gave us a whacker. You guys know what I'm talking about? So that's what we use. You might use a wooden spoon. You might use a paint stick. You might use a belt. You might use a ping pong paddle. I don't know what you use, but we use something that we believe distributes the help our kid needs across their backside, all right? So that's what we're using. Typically, we might give three or four spanks. I'm not the type of parent who has every offense has a number to it. If you do this, it's just one. If you do this, it's two. This one's three. This one's four. Here's the chart, you know, so you know how many you get. We typically just walk in and our kids ask, how many, Dad? How many? And, you know, I try to discourage this counting thing, but I'll say, I don't know, three or four. I'm just trying to make good connection. You know what I mean? That's kind of the goal. Because that's, that's part of what we're talking about is if, if you're just in there like, okay, Johnny, are you okay? I mean, you got to give a little bit more umph to it. I mean, I, I believe that it should be enough to bring tears. It may not always bring tears from some of those hard-hearted young reprobates. But the idea is that you want to be firm enough to where they know you mean business, but not so firm that it would ever be considered abusive. Fair enough? Sometimes we might say, if it's really bad, we might say, hey, it's going to be five or something like that. I don't have a science to it. I'm just saying there, there is the idea of, of uh, administering the rod. I mean, I certainly wouldn't say give them 50, right? Uh, we've talked to some parents who said, well, the Bible says 39 lashes, so we can go up to there. I wouldn't recommend it, All right? <clears throat> so uh, how do we do it? We, we have our kids, again, lots of wiggle room here, but we have our kids uh, pull down their outer garment. And they, they leave on their inner garment, their underwear. Did I say that? And, uh, and then we just, we just spank right there. So if you do it a little bit different, that's up to you. I'm just telling you what we do. And we feel like that's a way that they're not completely shamed, but we can make better contact if there's not a whole lot of clothing in the way. All right? If the kid has a diaper on, uh, sometimes we've removed the diaper. I think more times than not, it might be a swat on the thigh just below the diaper line. Uh, the question comes out, well, when do you start doing this? Uh, as soon as you feel like your kid's rebellious and they're arching their back, certainly there's more than once when we had a kid where we're changing a diaper and they arch their back and we might just be like, give them a good pop on the thigh, right? And they're like, ah! and they really go for it. <clears throat> but I mean, you got to start at some point, right? There's no perfect science to it because if, if you wait till they're, you know, a year or 18 months or 24 or 30, I mean, but, I mean, when are you going to start? I just say, as soon as it's evident that that child's rebellious, there needs to be, you know, if your kid's throwing their food on the floor, you give them a little, you know, they're reaching out to the electrical socket, you know, you got you to gotta start at some point, and then you just be consistent. I would say, uh, how long do you go? I asked several parents, by the way, several, several of our elders and other pastors, I just said, man, when, when did you guys stop this process of disciplining them with the rod? And most of them said somewhere between 10 and 12. That was just, you know, general thought 
I asked them specifically, are you saying it's wrong to discipline a teenager? And none of these pastors, many of them you would know, said absolutely wrong. It's just probably wiser to start moving away into other measures of discipline besides corporal punishment somewhere around the time they, be, they transition from being a child to being a young adult which is kind of consistent with our view here at Placerita that we, we kind of consider children's ministry from birth all the way through sixth grade. And then when they move into seventh grade from 12 to 13, we kind of start thinking of them as young adults, right? We, we, we don't really buy into the teenage years or, or, or a period of experimentation and they don't have responsibility and they can just do whatever they want. And it's like, oh, the teenage years. Like, it's like, no, they're called to account, and we treat them as young adults, and so maybe there's some wisdom in thinking of discipline with the rod being somewhere between uh, when you start up to around 12 or 13. There, there's some other things you can do, and I want to talk about those in a moment, all right? But let me move on to number six. So, number six, have your child ask for forgiveness for their sin. Okay, so we, we try to work hard on having the child not only acknowledge their sin, but to ask God for forgiveness and to ask mom or dad for forgiveness, and you say, well, what if, what if your kid's not a Christian and they don't really mean, and they're not really sorry? Well, we, we still teach them that that's what God would have them do. I'm not going to, you know, I, I want them to get to the right place where they can say it and mean it. So if I can tell they're just like, I'm sorry, would you please forgive me? I'm like, hey, well, hold on, time out. Are you really sorry? I mean, so there's ways that you're trying to just back up and make sure you get to the heart. But you can't just be like, well, when you're sorry, come and tell me. Because what if they never come and tell you? What if they never learn what it looks like to seek forgiveness and to repent. You have to teach repentance, and you have to teach uh, a child, I believe, how to ask for forgiveness in a God-honoring way. And all along, you're praying and making sure they understand it's not just the words, it's your heart. You need to ask God to help you to be repentant. And so I think that's an important aspect in the discipline process. Number seven, tell your child that you forgive them and that you love them. And this is the best part. While discipline is a, is a you know, challenging thing for a parent, this is where it gets good. This is where you can finally say, if my child were to say, hey, Dad, I'm sorry for lying. Would you forgive me? And I can look at him, and if I've been a little bit stern, or if I've been a little bit you know, in, in daddy mode and I'm upset with you, then I can immediately at this point be like, yes, I forgive you, and I love you, and I can smile, and I can hopefully be a gospel grace to them and an example that I'm not holding this against you. I fully forgive you, just like Christ forgives me. And then you have a beautiful conversation about what it means to be forgiven so that you can then leave that place, not under guilt, but under the grace of God. And so it's a great opportunity that moment to emphasize emphatically that they are forgiven. At 1 John 1, 9, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Though our sins were scarlet, he makes us white as snow. He throws our sins as far as the east is from the west. Those are reassuring truths from the Bible to make sure your kids understand. Next, number eight, embrace your child with a hug and reassure them that you want to help them. Right? This is a good time to just hug them and love on them. The last thing you want is you storm out of the room really mad, your kid storms out of the room really mad, and there's no reconciliation. And so we strive to say, hey, come here, buddy, I want to give you a hug. And he, they may initially be like, I don't want to hug. You know, and it's like, hey, I understand, but I'm going to hug you. Come here. And we might, at that point, try to in, inject a little bit of humor or a little bit of, hey, come here, buddy, it's all right. And we just, we just want to hug them, hold them, kiss them on the forehead, 
let them know that you really do have nothing against them, that you embrace them in a healthy way. And then number nine, remind your child of the gospel and magnify the love of God through Christ. If you haven't done it already, at some point before you leave that room, you just want to have a succinct, sometimes it'll be longer, sometimes shorter, gospel conversation. That's why Jesus came. We all deserve hell. You deserve worse than a spanking. You deserve eternal punishment in hell forever. But God, by his grace, sent his son, his one and only son, who was perfect, who never sinned or deserved God's judgment, but God placed our sin on him that we could be forgiven. Christ paid our sin debt. You can be forgiven. You can go free. You can be a Christian. You don't have to worry. God is not after you in the sense of right now, you're in a right standing with him. So it's just important to take the time to reiterate the gospel truths. And then lastly, number 10, instruct your child as you go back to the situation with a new attitude and a new goal. All I mean is if, if I've been disciplining one of my kids because they're not eating their food or using table manners, then before we go right back down to the table, I've got to prep my kid to be like, okay, if you're repentant, when we get down there, it means you're going to sit down and you're going to eat your chicken. You understand what I'm saying? You're going to eat your chicken and you're going to be happy about it. And we're going to pray that God would help you be happy because if not, we're going to come right back up here. So you're starting to think about being happy. Can you do this with God's help? Can I help you? I, I tell you what, why don't you, and I might ease off a little bit. I'm going to help feed you or whatever. I'm going to just help you get to a point where you can now obey. If, if it was that they didn't clean up their room and that's why we discipline them, it's like, hey, we're going to go clean up your room. So it's not like we're done here. We're going to walk out of here and go clean up your room. And guess what? Daddy will help you because I want to help them get through that hard hump, right? Or if it's they sin against mommy, hey, you need to go ask mommy to forgive you. That's the first thing we're going to do. Are you ready to do that? Are you ready to ask mommy to forgive you for what you did? Because that's the next thing that we need to do. Now, let me talk about some other forms of discipline as well, if I might. First of all, I read about 10 articles about discipline from our culture. And as you might imagine, secular psychologists would say things like, well, disciplining your child crushes their ego and it crushes their self-esteem. So don't do it. And they would be quick to resolve to other ways of implementing correction. Some studies, however, I did find said that those parents that discipline lovingly and firmly receive good results. And so there's a little bit out there that would be okay with that, but the majority is slanted against it. Instead of giving you all the reports of all the psychologists in America and what they think about it, I thought I would just tell you what God says about it. Because at the end of the day, who cares what a lot of studies say about the results of discipline? I don't need a psychologist to tell me what I'm doing to my kid is helpful or hurtful. I need the Word of God. I need the sufficiency of Scripture. Now, I'm not saying that reading those studies are interesting or cause you to pause and think, and maybe there's an observation that affirms what you read in Scripture. So I'm not against it altogether. I'm just saying I don't need it as my authority and my justification. Right? The Word of God is enough. If there was never an article out there about discipline, I'd be just fine with the sufficiency of the Bible to know how to apply principles. And so I believe the Bible teaches clearly use the rod. We read all of the passages in Proverbs. So I think that's God's best prescribed way of discipline is that physical corporal punishment. However, 
I do think there's a time and place for things like time out. You say, oh, Adam. Well, look, I, I don't know if you know this. We practice time out at this church. You ever been to pick up one of your kids and they're sitting over in the corner? That's called time out, right? I mean, you can't always at every moment be there with the rod because we have a culture that that, that doesn't always happen and you can't find that private place. So I, I think that the, the thing we have to be careful about time out or grounding would be the idea that sometimes a hard heart gets harder while they stew about what happened and the loss of that privilege, whereas discipline, if done correctly, can potentially take care of the business and you come out and you're fresh to move on. You, you understand what I'm saying? Where sometimes grounding can have a negative effect. But with that being said, I do believe that timeout and grounding and loss of privileges are helpful, particularly as the child is getting older. And we just talked about you're probably not going to keep disciplining your child the same way, you know, that you're 18 year old or your 16 year old like you would your two or three year old. Right. So we understand that taking away the cell phone or the keys or the ability to go to the movie or whatever can be very helpful. In fact, that might get their attention more than trying to physically discipline them. So we would be we, it would, we wouldn't be fair to say that there's not a place for some of these things. I think one of the most helpful principles to keep in mind is the idea of restitution, which is what we talked about earlier. You go and make it right. And so if you have a teenager that's struggling with something, let's say they're on Facebook too much or they're texting or, or tweeting or whatever they're doing and you've told them uh, they're doing that too much or not to do that anymore tonight and you catch them doing that uh, you know, later in the night and so you're going to discipline them for it. Well, you could take away their cell phone. That's true. That, that's more of a, a punitive punishment because you're just taking it away. What I would suggest is like, oh, you, you want social interaction? Okay, we're going to go to the hospital and visit some, some people who are sick. We're going to go visit some older folks at our church and let you build relationships with them because there's a lot that you have to learn about social interaction. Sometimes face-to-face -face is better than only having a relationship you know, on cyberspace, all right? So the idea is it could be that you can take whatever they're doing. Let's say what, what they did was, um, you know, they're, they're lazy. And so that's why you feel like you need to discipline them because they're not getting their work done. They're not cleaning their room. They're not doing their chores. Well, maybe a good way to do restitution in a situation like that would be like, you know what? We're going to go clean the neighbor's house. We're going to find somebody from church. We're going to go clean their house. We're going to help you learn that, you know, there's a corrective to this by, by, with God's help. And I would say go with them. Help them, especially initially, uh, learn the joy of serving others. Let's say uh, that the problem they're having is trouble at school. And so they're in a public school. I, I talked to a dad one time who had a fifth grade son who constantly acted up. And no matter what they did, this kid was still getting in trouble at school. So he decided, I'm coming to school with you. And I'm going to pull my desk up next to your desk. And I'm going to hang out with you right there in the classroom until you learn to honor your teacher. Well, guess what? That dad showed up one day, and it just took one day. <laughs> he said his kid never got in trouble with that teacher again because the dad sat there in the classroom for a day watching the behavior of his kid. And so there's other creative ways that you can learn to apply the principle of discipline other than just using the rod. So now that we've thoroughly talked about godly discipline, I have five minutes to get to what the sermon was supposed to be about today, which is godly instruction. So let's go there, godly instruction, because the verse says that we want to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So number one under godly instruction, godly instruction is admonishing, warning, and correcting your child. And so the word for instruction here, it's a noun, 
but the verb form is maybe more familiar to you. The verb form is nutheteo, which is where we get the idea of biblical counseling from, nuthetic counseling. The term comes from uh, the Greek word, uh, a combination of two Greek words, nuos, which means mind, and tithemi, which means to put into. So literally, nutheteo is putting into the mind. It's the idea of taking God's truth and instructing them in their mind to read and understand and comprehend the truth of God's word. And in so doing, praying that the spirit of God would ignite a comprehension of what the scripture is saying as it's addressing that situation. And it's used throughout the New Testament. I don't have time to read them all. Maybe you can this afternoon or in your small group. But all of those passages there are talking about the word nutheteo used throughout the New Testament. Number two, godly instruction is primarily the responsibility of the parent. Understand that primarily it is your responsibility to instruct your child in the word of God. Deuteronomy 6, you know it well, the Shema, skip down to verse 6 and 7. And these words I command to you today shall be upon your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. And you shall talk of them when you sit in the house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. This verse is addressed to parents. It is your job. It is my job to be the primary Bible teacher in the home. You don't need a seminary degree. You just need a Bible and a relationship with Christ and a love for the Lord and his word. And you can open your Bible at any time, at any place, and begin to instruct your child. Now, listen to what I'm saying. I'm not saying you have to sit down for a three-hour devotion every day. I would encourage you not to do that. I am saying that every day or as often as possible, you're opening the scriptures and you're reading them. And you're talking about them. And when things come up through the day, you're reminding them of what God's word says about that. About about discipline and loving and sharing and idols of the heart. And you just remind them and you begin to meditate and memorize scriptures. That's your job. That is not the homeschooling corporation organization's job. It's not the Christian school's job. It's not Sunday school's job. It's not your youth pastor's job. It's not your youth staff worker's job. It's your job. And if your child's not having a quiet time, that's your fault. You ought to know about it before your youth worker knows about it. Because you're the one encouraging kindly, gently, repetitively. Oh, uh, you're not, haven't been in the scripture lately? Well, let's sit down and read together. I'd like to read, let's read the book of Philippians. Why don't we read it together and let's just talk about chapter one. That's your job. Now, at the same time, thank God for churches like ours, hopefully, who come alongside you in doing that well. We're we're not here to usurp your authority. We're here to encourage every person to love Christ and to walk with him. When I was candidating as a youth pastor at Lakeside Bible Church, Lisa and I flew to Texas and spent a weekend with this church, and we interviewed with the pastors and the elders and then all these parents who had kids in 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 the church. One dad looked at me and said, I don't need a youth pastor in the life of my kids. I'm like, all right. I'm like, hey, man, I'm just trying to help out, you know. He's like, he's like, I don't need someone taking my kids' hearts away from me. That's my job. And I said, amen. <laughs> Couldn't agree more. My job is to help kids love you and respect you and love God's word. I want to come alongside you and help you. 
Guess what that dad did? They had four kids. Not one of them was in our youth ministry until things went south. And as the older kids started getting into trouble, next thing you know, they all show up to the youth ministry and say, hey, we'll take whatever help we can get. Now, I know different people have different convictions on some of that stuff, but the principles I just gave to you are true. We all need each other to help teach children and teenagers and adults the word of God. It does not take a village to raise your kids. It takes a church that loves Christ and that will come alongside us in helping with parenting our children. Let me move on. Number three, godly instruction is to be done in some degree throughout the child's life. Do you remember when we were talking about obeying your mom and dad and honoring them? And I talked about, how, hey, look, you got to honor them for their whole life. You may not obey them for their whole life because at some point you're going to be out of the home and be your own you know, authority. But you still have to honor them till they die. Well, in the same way, as a parent, you have a responsibility to provide some instruction for your adult children until they die. You say, Adam, show me in the Bible where it says that. Well, I'll give you four places. You'll have to look them up. The first one is Abraham gave instruction to Isaac, and he followed it. The second one is Isaac gave instruction to his adult sons, and they followed it. The third one is David gave instructions to Solomon, and he followed it. And the last one is Solomon gave instructions to Rehoboam and to other sons, and they were attempting to follow it. The idea is just because your child is a grown child doesn't mean you stop parenting them. Obviously, you got to be wise, and you have to have wisdom. And I think one of the best principles of wisdom would be authority and influence change over time. When your child is a toddler, you have a lot of authority over them. You can tell them, you're wearing this, you're going to get up at this time, you're going to take a bath right now, you're going to do whatever, and you have all the authority in the world. But every year that your child grows older, you begin to lose authority. And so what you want to start doing is gaining influence. It's like if your authority is going down, because as your child gets older, they're not going to see you as a supreme authority like they did when they were younger. So your authority is going down. But guess what? Your influence is going up. You have opportunity to influence your child by how you live and how you motivate. You become more of a coach who is trying to think through, how can I get into the head of my kids to help motivate them to see the glory of God? Because you can't just tower over them and say, you will respect the glory of God. You begin to influence them by how you live and how you uh, pray for them and how you influence them so that they begin to make decisions on their own that honor the Lord. So over the age of your child, you have less authority you have an opportunity to make a difference with your influence. And this is the principle that John Miller really learned and applied as he says towards the end of his book. Let me read you just a couple more things of how that story ended up. He writes this, quote, We felt as though Barbara was headed into an abyss and there was nothing we could do to stop it. All we could do was to shake our heads. We had feared the worst and it was beginning to happen. It was like slipping into a bad dream in which you are watching someone about to skydive from an airplane. As the skydiver leans forward to jump, you notice he is not wearing a parachute. You try to shout a warning, but the cry freezes in your throat. You muster all your strength, but no sound comes. All you can do is watch the skydiver fall. 
Again, I'm not talking about younger kids necessarily, but as your kids get older, as a parent, you may have to go through that painful experience of watching your child make bad decisions, and you can't change that. He goes on to say, today, it is my conviction that no matter how heavy the blow inflicted by circumstances, each negative experience is part of the Heavenly Father's perfect plan for the purpose of building something better in its place. Our part is not to run away from the pains, but to walk through the briars and thorns and let Christ teach us how to turn each scratch into positive learning about the depths of God's love. Pretty good perspective, huh? That was what God was doing with Barbara. Though the idea did not appeal to me then, I hated to watch her fall into a chaos of her own making. Furthermore, I did not like feeling that I was also part of the process of tearing and breaking. I wanted to cry out, call off the bulldozer, Lord. I like my landscape just the way it is. I've had my share of suffering. So what he's saying is sometimes your kids will rip your heart out and there's nothing you can do about it other than pray and trust God and be faithful to gently point them to Christ or sometimes maybe let them go and allow them to be in God's hands, which is when he writes this. At that point, Rosemarie, his wife, told me that Jill, our daughter-in-law, and Ruth, our daughter, wanted to talk to me. When I met with Jill, she had some real wisdom to share. Ruth and I know how much you and mom care about Barb, she said. But we think that the best thing you could do for Barb is to let her go all the way. Right now, she feels the intensity of your caring. But as long as she feels it from you, she will not be able to see Christ. You're just too big on the horizon for her to see Jesus. Later, Ruth said much of the same thing. She asked, Dad, is there anything you need to tell Barbara that you haven't already told her? I thought that went over carefully. No, I answered. I guess maybe I've said it all at least once and then some. Then, said Ruth, ease off. I believe as you and mom step back and let her go, You'll give room for the Holy Spirit to work. So long as she feels your emotional pressure, the Holy Spirit can't show her Christ. Now she only feels the presence of you and mom and all you're caring. At this time, you have done all that you can. It was a revolutionary idea. It was the kind of wisdom that could only ultimately have come from the Lord. I had been taking Barbara so seriously and unconsciously making her feel my concern that I was not giving her the opportunity to be driven to Christ by her own mistakes. I was trying to be the Holy Spirit in Barbara's life, and in so doing, I only succeeded in making her more aware of me than of God. While Rosemarie and I still prayed and waited for God's big intervention, I was satisfied and confident that God was in charge and could be trusted to capture Barbara in his own time and way. For the present, I was glad that the dominating schoolmaster that lurks in every father had recently met his death in me when I bowed to the wisdom of Jill and Ruth. 
the freedom to just treat Barbara as I would any other non-Christian became precious to me. With God's help, I took myself out of the picture. Emotionally, I was freed from destructive conflicts with Barbara and newly opened to learn from God about constructive forms of spiritual conflict. I knew that out of the chaos, a new creation would arise, a creation that would glorify Christ. After several more years of prayer and only interacting when asked to, uh, his daughter Barbara came back. She repented of her sin on her own doing, apart from her parents' direct involvement, came back to Christ. Her husband became a youth pastor at their church. She became a teacher at a Christian school, and they have a beautiful ministry together. It's a great, encouraging book. I would recommend it to you. While there may be little parts you might feel a little differently about, I think overall you'd be very blessed if if that's where you're at today. So let me just give you a couple of take-home final applications, and we'll be out of here. Number one, are you disciplining your children firmly, gently, and consistently with the effort of getting to the heart? I think that word consistently is what I need to hear because while I may think I'm being firm and gentle, I'm certainly not always being consistent. God help us to be faithful and consistent. Number two, are you instructing your children in the word of God with a goal to explain, exhort, and encourage your kids in the Lord? Remember, you're not just looking for head knowledge here. You're encouraging them to really live out what they believe as their little hearts grapple with the truths of God's word. Number three, are you tempted to trust in your own methods more than you are actively asking God to light the gospel bomb? Light the bomb, Lord. Light the bomb. Must be our prayer as we see God do a special work of grace and as we seek to be spirit-filled parents. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the opportunity to look at this passage yet again and to think about what it means to discipline practically, what it means to instruct our children in the Lord. Father, we need your help and we need your grace to do what you've called us to do in a way that only you can truly work about. And so, God, would you bless that parent today who's frustrated, who is suffering a wayward child? Would you allow them to experience your kindness through repentance? And God, would you bless the the mom and the dad with toddlers and young ones at home that they would be faithful in disciplining their children and leaving the results up to you? God, how we need your help to talk about these things, to live these things out, resting in the finished work of the cross, striving to apply what you've called us to apply in your strength and for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.